Sure. Right. There's a fine line. In the case of Gordon Walker, right, um, Gordon is, first of all, you know, one of the absolute top dogs, and he could wear, you know, uh, he could wear like a potato sack, uh, and people would, you know, still fully respect him. And then second of all, he's not a civilian player uh, like most of us are. Not all of us, but, you know, Gordon uh, fully, you know, um, I don't know. He wears the garb fully with, I think, the objective of right. Well, the military history behind everything and the sort of yeah. discipline in dress that goes along with it. I think is, is what we're talking about. And he's definitely right. got you know a range of looks that he's you know sort of sported you know when he goes out. So um, he definitely just brushes up against the line sometimes, but it's all in good taste. It's never like clownish. Yeah. You know? Exactly, and uh, you know, it's it's also part of Gordon's thing too. I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, as well, so. It, so what I was saying before was it was a general thing, a general opinion. For example, for someone to dress like Gordon Walker, um, you know, yeah. on on the boards at the Altamont Games in in uh, the Capital District is al- almost always kind of tacky and not really necessary. In my opinion. Um, okay, uh, here's what I want to do. We're going to talk about P-Brock today. Um, I have a recording of me playing um, a cool version of Too Long in This Condition. So I thought we'd get started by get, just listening to some P-Brock and get in the mood, and uh, we'll go from there. So uh, here's a little P-Brock, and then we'll talk P-Brock after that.
Like the golf clap? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting, like, uh, I was going to say, it's interesting because um, completing a P bracket, you know, with everything going really well, that performance was, uh, you know, really strong performance and everything was in there. But it's like a sort of barbaric, epic feat happened and it's ironic that uh, a golf exactly. clap is all that it merits exactly Dares like those yeah it's a fun tune it's really really cool and uh and that's a, that's a really it's odd not version. the same as you what you don't hear that at all you know i don't think anybody would risk playing that on the big boards you know that were a tune picked well that's not actually true well, it's not actually true. My uh, my understanding is uh, Mike Rogers won his silver medal with this tune. With this tune, with uh, that version. And that's good. Yeah. That's um, and um, and Jimmy McIntosh printed this uh, in the Voice quite a while ago. Yeah. It's and, in his new book and, too. Uh, his, his new book of pew brackets in there as well. Oh, excellent! Yeah, it's it's one of those things that um, you should play on the big boards if you're well studied in it, yeah. because it's really really cool. And um, you know, we'll get into we'll likely talk about uh, different settings of tunes, uh, but let's get started with you know the obvious. Ashby says Hebrock is not boring, but it may not appeal to everyone, and just because it does not appeal to some people does not diminish the art form. Thoughts? Who's got thoughts? No one's typing. I think if you don't, I think if you don't like Pebrock, you're not refined. Yes, I would agree with that. You're not. You're not giving anything. You know, if you if you're willing to sort of just shut it out and say, "Oh, I hate that." I've heard Piper say that. Too. You know, I just hate Pebrock. Means you're just you're not giving any like. How likely are you to give anything a chance? You know, like somebody puts a, a new, like if some chef in a restaurant puts down this glorious dish in front of you, like you're just going to go, oh, <laughs> I'm going to taste that. I can't, I can't even put that near my mouth. You know, it's like, it, I was that's, kidding, that's, but you, you ran with it. So that's, that's yeah. cool. So you have to be, I think, to uh, at least listen and sort of consider and, you know, discern, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely very interesting. Um, I was sort of kidding. I mean, uh, I don't think you should have to like anything, but I think most people don't like P-Rock because, um, and David was saying he doesn't really understand it particularly well. And uh, I think, you know, I think your lack of understanding, lack of knowing what you should be listening for, it can definitely lend itself to thinking that you don't like it. Yeah, I, I think it definitely has something uh, to do with it, too. So, I think it's, it has something to do with its lack of audience appeal. You know, like that's been a challenge for a long time, is trying to get an audience for Peabrock. And, you know, it's it kind of it's kind of stagnant in its sort of, you know, appreciation, if you will, you know, for a general listening public. But I, but I think it's, it's, it's indelibly connected to its history and, you know, the intricacies of the music, I think the more people know about that stuff, I think the more interesting it becomes and the more willing people are to 
really sort of give it a listen and, and consider it, you know. And, and that's the one thing that's missing from most Pibrock performances, like the, the, the history and the sort of, you know, the lore and the, and the intricacies of the music don't get a feature at all, really. It's just the tune, you know. Here's this player. He's going to play this tune, you know. Here's a little bit about the tune and yeah. off you go. You know, and I think... Uh, I think when you, when you stretch it further than that, it becomes a lot more richer. You know? Yep, it's interesting. I think that, um, you know, I, I think let's get started with um, David's uh, challenge, which is he doesn't fully understand P-Rock that well. Well, let's get started by just comparing the role that P-Rock played um, in the culture of the Scottish Highlands um, and compare that to the role that, like, YouTube plays in our current culture. Uh, it's kind of similar, right? I mean, in the Highlands of Scotland, uh, Pibroch was one of the ultimate forms of entertainment. And, and it was one of those things where if you don't have YouTube or cable TV um, and, you know, other forms of entertainment, um, you know, Pibroch was really sort of interesting. And I think music as a process that took a little bit longer was really, really encouraged. And it's totally different than how we look at music now, where all of the great music of the past 50 years has had to fit inside of four minutes on the radio. Exactly. All of the famous exactly. music that, that the mainstream well, I, I, segment of the culture is going to enjoy, right? Yeah, I, I like to compare it to, like, you know, you know, the background music that people hire, you know, for cocktail parties and stuff like that. You know, like, you know, there are a lot of some, you know, fancy parties will hire a violinist or a cellist or something like that or a quartet and they're just playing away in the background and it's providing sort of this functional atmospheric effect that no one's really listening to the music, but at the same time, it's the character of the music they're playing lends itself to that sort of just atmosphere that is being created. And I think bagpipes was a lot, was a lot like that back then, you know, that was the way to, you know, ceremoniously mark different kinds of events, create an atmosphere around certain circumstances, whatever they might be. Um, and that was, so you needed these long pieces. You needed this, you know, these stretched out pieces that had some sort of significance for the event or for the occasion that would, uh, lend, you know, create that mood, you know? Yep. Um, Gary says, um, Pibrock is unique to what the writer was trying to communicate as well as the interpretation by the person playing it. I think generically that's definitely true. Um, but at the same time, it's the same sort of thing as other forms of music that you might hear uh, this day and age, right? So you could say, well, the Beatles, you know, were writing about different things than the Rolling Stones. However, the building blocks of Pibroch are very much, um, it, you know, the same is not really representative, but they're extremely similar across the board. So uh, going back to a ba having a basic understanding of Pibroch. So what it is, it's an opening melodic theme Okay, which you which you heard clearly um, in my recording here that I made the the nice opening theme, similar to a slow air, although not necessarily too similar. And then um, after that opening melody, there are a list of variations that take that general idea and expand upon it, and uh, the melody starts to transform itself in interesting ways. There's a lot of different ways it can transform itself, right? We can go straight into technical variations, or we could have another melodic variation that makes changes to the first one, and different tunes will progress 
in different ways. Um, and, and, and I think so, what's important to realize too is that back yes. when you know this form was sort of the main form of you know sort of music playing on the bagpipe, it was you know that that technique, that awareness of being able to do that is kind of like kind of like improv actors. You know, they have their sort of techniques and then they just sort of work with them. It was a lot like that. I mean, everyone kind of knew how to build on those themes in different ways that, uh, you know, was unique to that Piper, you know, to, because it was just so, so familiar. You could just like take that, that motif and just run with it in different technical ways or different musical ways. And I think that's, that's the kind of thing that's been lost, I think, over right. the centuries, you know. Yeah, I think lost isn't so much the right word as completely and utterly <laughs> exactly. destroyed. Uh, but yes. Uh huh. Um, and we, I'm sure, we'll end up on a tangent about that. Let's stick to it here. John says one of the challenges of finding an audience is, is that Pibrock is usually preceded by tuning. John, I agree with you completely, right? Tuning is a huge problem when it comes to presenting Pibrock to. Uh, wider audiences outside of high-level pipers that sort of know what it's all about, right? And I think that, uh, yeah, I, I'm a strong advocate of getting rid of tuning in solo competitions across all lines. At least, um, or maybe instead of having a three-minute tuning rule, I think maybe you could be allowed 30 seconds to, you know, just in case, you know, your bagpipe um, has anything radical has happened to your bagpipe between the tuning room and the stage. Um, but John, I can't agree with you more. I think that that's a big issue facing bagpipers if we're serious about, um, you know, building audience. Gary has a question. Especially with Pibrock, right? I, I can't tell you how many times in Pibrock people are like, I can't really tell when the tuning ends and the tune exactly. begins. And there are rules. Yeah, big, all uh, the rules for the tuning, you know, the I whole thing. Like you, once you get into the whole gestalt of it, it's like, you know, you realize, oh, here's where they're going to start their tune. You're ready, they're ready soon. Because you can feel like the change happening, you know. It's, and I only know that because I've heard so many people tune, <laughs> you know, over the years. that You get this sort of like pattern that goes on. You know, it's yeah. Really funny. Absolutely. And um, so Gary's question, were, when these tunes were written, uh, was there a formal method of transcribing the music? Well, uh, in the old school days, there was no formal method of transcribing the music. Later on in the development of Pibrock, people started to become more formal. Uh, but very clearly in the, in the early, you might call it the vibrant early days of Pibrock, right? It was all transmitted orally and as Vin was pointing out before it was highly improvisational so it's likely that and, and by and what I mean when I say this is um, correct me if I'm wrong Vin 1400s 1500s 1600s um, and then um, in the 1700s was when things started to become more formal um, in the late 1700s uh, the you know started to become yeah, I think, uh, political you know, I think issues. you know that was that was the you know the famous sort of uh, 19th century uh, sort of stories that come out um, you know there was the early days of, of Pibrock playing in competition you know there were contests for people who were able to transcribe Pibrock on the staff 
you know, which at that point really wasn't in use any more than what, 200 years, maybe, if that. So, yeah. and then Angus right. Mackay I mean, famously, uh, won. Angus Mackay yeah, famously was... won this competition for putting Pibrock on the staff in like 18, 18 or something, 1817, something like that. And it wasn't until Donald McDonald Although, it, uh, printed his first, his book that actually became, uh, you know, some, something formalized, you know. Yeah, and, and then with the formalization of writing out Pibrock, how much of the spirit of it was eradicated, right? That's, that's, a, big, that's a big issue. Think, you know, someone earlier, I think it was Gary, was bringing up jazz, you know. Um, if you tried to notate exactly how jazz was supposed to go on paper and then started, you know, mandating and or expecting people to uh, try to just recreate jazz off that piece of paper, a lot would be lost, right? Um, a lot would be lost and, and so on. And so, yeah, and it's, you know, a lot of it was like more or less trying to uh, formalize something that was very fluid and very formless in a lot of ways. You know? I think that's where things... Right, yeah. Exactly. Uh, John said, an interesting point for those of us who watched, Jimmy Bell got the tuning and playing right at Winter Storm. It's, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I, I agree with you there. I think that um, he also was able to capitalize on a lot of the um, a lot of the really front runner type names. Um, he was able to capitalize on them getting the tuning wrong. Right? They really did not manage to uh, tune their instruments well enough. Um, and I think I don't think Jimmy's tuning his bagpipe was perfect, but um, he was able to <clears throat> make it happen from point A to point Z. I've seen him do that before. Which it was seems huge. to be you know, something he's sort of consciously yeah. doing, but it sometimes works to his advantage and sometimes not. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, I think, gamble, um, you know. yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think it is a gamble, um, the way that you'll often see Jimmy do that. But uh, in this case, it paid yeah. off. <laughs> Jimmy made a lot more money than the other people, um, and, and and so on. So um, and then certainly the way Jimmy played the tune was um, inspired. There's no doubt about it. I think that's all a function of that's that's like a recent and modern kind of uh, thing too. You know, everybody's so worried about getting the sound perfect and seamless. You know, that we sort of have eleven minutes of tuning before anybody plays their tune, and it's like there's this obsession with that when. You know, somebody like Jimmy go up and just play, and the drums are not completely locked in, but it really doesn't matter, you know, because the tune is good. And it's like it's it's all about a, yeah. an overall effect and an overall presentation that I think, you know, and if you listen to, you know, some of the recordings of Donald McPherson and, and others, you know, the drones are not perfect, but they create this this presentation that stands alone by itself, you know, just it's, it's complete, even though it's yeah, not absolutely. You know, locked in tonally, you know. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, for the record, what Jimmy Bell did um, is absolutely what I would advocate for a reasonable tuning time in solo competitions, right? He tuned for 30 seconds tops, and then he was into his tune. And I think any more than that should be disallowed um, just because there's no need for it. I think Jimmy um, is uh, in, in uh staunch support of my point of view there and how we approach mm -hmm. that. I will sometimes do that like in, in outdoor competitions when there is literally no change 
from where I was tuning to where I'm now mm. playing. Um, I'll often go for a shorter tuning time, but then keep in mind to not use the time given to you uh, uh, can put you at a disadvantage as well. So, um, so there you go. Let's see. Ro let's go. Let's go on to uh, Rohan's uh, statement here. Seeing as there was no formal way to transcribe the music, this must have had an influence on the way an individual expressed the music in the way they played. <coughs> so the question. How do you go about understanding a tune and its interpretation? And how do you know you are playing correctly or accurately? That is though, yeah, then there is no, um, uh, there's no real definitive answer to that question. Um, that's largely what the Peabrock Society concerns itself with. So the Peabrock Society is a group of high-level Peabrock players that's based in Scotland. And they've published many volumes of printed music, but that's not just it, right? They, they uh, print volumes of P-Brock, um, but it's also heavy-duty uh, discussion. It's almost, like, it's almost like a constitutional convention on each tune and what the definitive <clears throat> interpretation of the tune should be. And, of course, the bottom line that I believe is that there are no definitive versions of any tunes, nor should there be. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of people, even in the Peabock Society, who would agree with that. Um, but it's sort of like a, a double-edged sword. Yeah. Back in the yeah. early days when the Peabock Society started, like 1903, I think when it first started officially, um, you know, basically came out of a frustration in competitions that, you know, for hearing all kinds of different versions of tunes. There was no, you know, set formalized, um, you know, way to present these tunes. And given the education level of some of these people that were judging at the time. These people weren't, at the time, high-level P-Rock players. They were just educated aristocrats who were, uh, you know, essentially frustrated by, by the fact that they were hearing all kinds of different things, even from the same tune. And, uh, right. and so they, they created the P-Rock Society in, in order to create standards. So when, when Pipers came out for competition, they knew exactly what they were, were supposed to be doing. You know, and that's essentially the whole origin of the Peabrock Society. And since then, it's, you know, gotten to the study of tunes, and it's, uh, you know, sort of... Amazing. Uh, its its goal has been to transcribe, you know, tunes that have otherwise been, you know, sort of scribbled manuscripts and things like that. So um, it's like an invaluable resource, really, over the last 100 years. It is yeah, and exactly. it isn't, right? Because uh, now there's, there's, also the, there's also the pressure to play the... Um, there's pressure, although the pressure is alleviated more and more year to year, right? It's becoming less and less important uh, to play a perfectly, you know, a perfectly canned mm -hmm. version of a tune. Yeah, and, and people were penalized, right, in those early days, too, when they would come to a competition and play some version that they were taught, you know, um, that didn't, you know, sort of follow the Peabrock Society official setting and they would get penalized for it, you know, just because it wasn't the official setting. And that happened for a number of years before people sort of fell into line. Um, you know, a whole a whole world of variety that was essentially sort of you know pushed aside, I think, you know, for the sake of uh, ease of judging, I guess, if you want to call it that. You know. Yes, indeed. So there you go. Yes, indeed. So, so there you go. I mean, I think that. Uh, oh, here's another question: Is there a generally accepted idiom for each Peabrock? 
For example, with a stress bay, you have strong, weak, medium. Yeah, there is. Uh, there's a generally accepted um, default uh, phrasing convention for uh, tunes in different time signatures, like 4-4, four, 3-4, four, 2-4. Four, four. Um, for example, most of these phrases will have a strong final pulse, um, and the pulses leading up to that will be uh, stressed in different ways. Although you look at um, like Robert Reed's style is uh, way, way, way different than that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, there were, there are Pebrock scholars who sort of lament the disappearance of different styles of uh, <clears throat> phrasing. Yeah. It's just uh, a, but it's they're just definitely, process, you know, it's, it's really about, um, you know, I, you know, I think uh, Robert Wallace has a, has a forward in the new Phineas collection where he talks about like you know he sort of criticizes the idea of like following titles in history to, to sort of decode tunes but when each tune itself sort of communicates what should be done you know that's you know true and not true but the tunes themselves kind of kind of sort of determine where that emphasis should go and what's appropriate you know for the for the motifs there so yeah but so many of the uh so many of the professed um issues behind these tunes have been just straight up disproven by, you know, yeah, uh, exactly. you know, by various scholars as well. Like, you know, uh, there's serious doubt as to whether or not there was a piping school, uh, in Boreg. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the whole thing is a little bit, yeah. uh, well, well your tune too long in con this condition, right? It has the, the legend is sort of attributed to Donald Moore McCrimmon from like mid 1600s where he was like in exile, fleeing, you know, Kintail after burning it down, <laughs> composing Flame of Wrath, and uh, and sort of, you know, had this origin for this little song that he was singing at some point. But then there's other tales that tell, you know, it comes from the time, which is a similar time, uh, of the Reformation, and where there would be secret Catholic meetings, and these secret meetings would actually involve a lot of drinking, you know, and long hours of it, and... Um, you know, and because they were in hiding in such a miserable state, you know, these, this tune came out of that. Uh, this, and so too long in this condition refers to that necessarily, not necessarily Donald Moore's state of affairs as he's, you know, in tattered clothes and hungry <laughs> in exile. Right. And then, you know, and then there's a delicate balance, too, between, you know, whether or not you prefer to sort of buy into specific legends as opposed to the actual truth as well. You know, it's like anything. Yeah. Yeah, and and a lot of these, a lot of these, Angus Mackay was like one of the worst offenders of this. He would just change titles on the fly, you know, where mm -hmm. just everyone just sort of accepted it. As some a lot of, of the, a lot of the history of Peabrock, a lot of it all bottlenecked with Angus Mackay, and mm -hmm. um, and this was a guy who was like, um, he was heavily, heavily politically influenced by the British Crown, um, and also uh, suffered severe mental. Um, disability at the end of his life due to syphilis infection, right? right? Well, and was, uh, was, yeah, he was kicked out of the Queen's court, uh, you know, allegedly for that because he was was sort of unseemly, I guess, or he was yeah. just going crazy, whatever. Pick, take your pick. <laughs> yeah. Yep, absolutely. Oh, Gary, why are you why are you just hitting me in my funny bone now? There are many people who have sung the Star Spangled Banner for large audiences. Each has had his or her own interpretation of how it should be sung. Some of the performances have brought tears to the eyes. Others brought tears for differing reasons. Well, usually it 
brings tears for differing reasons because of a lack of suitable technique uh, to perform that piece of music. But man, I hate, I hate the way uh, modern uh, artists interpret. It's a good example. Is right. You have people trying to do something fancy with this stuff, and it's like, you know, and there's, you know, again, granted, people are going to like it, some people are going to hate it, but it's all part of this sort of variety that exists that makes the whole thing interesting. Um, the, which, you know, with the peeve rock, it's like the opposite. The Star Spangled <laughs> Banner at the Super Bowl. Yeah. The Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl was like the least patriotic rendition I've ever heard in my life. Namely because it was um, sang as such an awful, depressing lament, um, which is not what the Star Spangled Banner is about at all. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Gary, for getting me all riled up. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think there should be, and by the way, this is for those who like to uh, misinterpret me, I'm kidding here, but I think there should be a, a, a sentence of several years imprisonment for singing the Star Spangled Banner below <laughs> a certain beats per minute. Mm. Well, you, are you going to form the, uh, like, the, the National Anthem Society and then implement standards and... Official transcribed sheet music. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's what's needed, right? You got to save the Star Spangled yeah. Banner from from its depravity. That's right. You know, it's it's just going to get lost. You know, in this whole thing. <laughs> Gary said the same could be said about some P-Rock performances. I agree, but also I I agree um, with uh, the technical side of things as well. Right. I think I think the technical interpretation and performance of P-Rock is usually what kills it. Um, and it's rarely, you know, I, for me, the interpretation of a tune based on what it's called or what it supposedly is about, uh, that the music, doesn't concern me. Music is definitely rich enough much. to hold its for own example, regardless of history. But, you know, like I said in the beginning, you know, I think for me it's like a lot of that is it just enriches the entire, you know, relationship with the tune and, and the entire, you know, sort of, um, in a way that sort of makes you connected to the music can, so you definitely. actually can actually interpret it in a way that, you know, suits you or can make it personal. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, otherwise it's just more music you're playing and there's no personal kind of investment in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mike says he likes Alan McDonald's thoughts. Alan McDonald is a very famous uh, P-Brock player who actually won the gold medals in the sort of um, mainstream interpretations of tunes and then ventured on to develop his own um, heavily researched versions of tunes. And I agree, Mike. I like basically everything Alan McDonald um, does in, in, pertaining to P-Brock, mainly because it's so interesting and so well thought through. And yeah, variations being trance-like Ground being dreamlike, yeah, and, and you know, and sort of using a lot of. I like the way yeah. I like the way Alan McDonald uses a lot of these, like a lot of Pibrock phrases for use sort of melody notes that really would have been necessarily, but would have been grace notes or embellishments, and vice versa, you know, and, and you know, and vice and versa, yeah. Alan McDonald sort of takes that and sort of you know, shapes that in a way that makes the tune completely different. At the same time, they're still familiar, you know. Um, and it's, it's really interesting stuff. Anybody who's into that, can, <clears throat> we should pick up um, his his CD, which is called Dastrum. And uh, there's a lot of that on there, uh, musically. Yeah. He sings, he plays, 
Although I will say the fact that he lets his pipes go out of tune on that album uh, really bothers me. <laughs> yeah. I don't. You should, have spent, uh, you should have spent more minutes tuning that song. Yeah. And I think he's trying to make a point, but for me, that's a technical, uh, that's a technical error that obviously he's capable of, you know, not having. <laughs> so uh, like on a, on a pre-recorded album, you know, anyway, I digress. Um, <clears throat> okay, newer compositions compared to older ones. Well, I, I don't really know as though Peabrock, in the sense of the word that most of us are familiar, can really be composed in the modern musical day. Um, but at the same time, you listen to something like Field of Gold, um, which uh, is really cool. And I, I don't know, like I don't know if the two, I don't know if we're comparing apples to oranges or not. Well, I don't know. I, I think there's there's enough. Um... I don't know. There's enough. There's enough form there to really take it and sort of create something brand new from it. In you know, with that with that modern sort of outlook on things, like you said, like you can't really compose a Peabrock based on a sort of modern outlook because it's limited, right? And but I think you know, there's enough there that you can sort of compose something in the manner of <laughs> dot dot dot. You know, um, I think that's really what you're talking about like at that point when you know, Don McLeod composes a Peabrock. It's in the manner of you know, this music or this form. It's not necessarily AP rock in the purest sense, you know. Yeah, and, and who's to know really what pure P rock is? You know? mm -hmm. I don't know. It's one of those things. Okay. Uh, can I stand still during the doublings of a P rock? Well, you could do whatever you want. I think the accepted way of presenting a tune is to just sort of meander, uh, very casually and uh, thoughtfully yeah. and somewhat melodramatically. Um, and that's the accepted way, and that's what I do throughout a tune. It becomes completely natural after a while. You do it. You seem, you know, you're starting off Peabrack, it might seem a little weird, and, but you, you sort of end up doing it naturally, and it becomes second nature. You know? I've seen I've seen people like Gordon Walker. Is, I you know he's he's one who famously will stop in a Krenwood doubling and tap his foot. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I've seen that before. Yep. Um, Steve says the walking while playing is supposed to demonstrate that you're not locked into a distinct rhythmic time signature. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. That's not been my experience. I just think meandering, um, you know, allows the listener to experience different sides of your bagpipe. Um, and I think it helps from your legs getting really sore. I think it helps alleviate yeah. some Stay boredom. For 10 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, yeah. You know, it, well, and it, years ago, I mean, and this is not too long ago, a lot of the older players will, will, can tell you this, that they're, you know, in competitions, not everybody meandered. Some people just stood still. And, you know, yeah. so it's a relatively it's modern thing. It's, yeah, and, it's, and it is, as is playing the ground at the end, right? You know, once upon a time, not that long ago, people just stopped. They didn't play ground at the end of after everything's over. So these are like modern conventions that we sort of picked up on. Yeah, and it just sort of sticks. And, and yeah, you're right. I, I'm sure someday someone will come along and there'll be this amazing P-Rock player and they just stand still. Or they maybe they'll, they'll stop during their doublings. And then yeah. all of a sudden everybody will be doing it. And uh, I don't think there's mm -hmm. any real like rhyme or reason before it. So... Um, so there you go. 
Well, why don't we uh, call it in there for today? A good little discussion about PBROC there, and uh, we can pick up next week with some more intriguing bagpipe topics. I mean, I would advise everybody, I mean, if you're really interested in learning or getting started learning, I mean, you could easily go to the PBROC Society website and look around there and you find yeah. PDFs and manuscripts and literature and all kinds of things, and that'll get you, get you off to a good start, I think. Yeah, let me, uh, I'll post that link for us here, guys. PBROC Society website, very cool, tons of good stuff there. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the Metro Cup. I have a love-hate relationship with the Metro Cup because we always have band practice that weekend and nobody ever shows up because of the dumb Metro Cup. Uh, but at the same time, it's an amazing event, so I hope everybody going has fun, except for you, Vin. It stinks for you. Because you're not coming until Sunday now, right? That's, that's true. I'm, I'm playing in the morning. Metro Cup. I'm playing at the Metro Cup. <laughs> All right. Yeah, bagpipes. No, it's okay. I, I love the Metro Cup. Will you at least win the cup? I'll try. I'll try very hard. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for uh, tuning in. And we will see everybody next week for another riveting, highly educational episode of Dojo Universe. Seems a good day, everyone.